don't know if you've ever had the experience of being really unpopular. Um, so that uh, I remember one man, uh, a minister actually, who was in a train carriage and he was sitting talking to a couple of ladies and they didn't know who he was, but they actually began speaking about him and saying that he was the devil incarnate. Uh, he had a very pleasant conversation with them. He didn't tell them who he was. And when he, he left, they said, well, who shall we say was speaking to us? And he said, just say you supped with the devil. Um, I imagine if, I don't know, you were in a taxi with Sir Fred Goodwin or something, you wouldn't really want to say, I don't know what you would say, he seems incredibly uh, un unpopular person for obvious reasons. Well, Jesus, as he began his ministry, he called, first of all, I mean, people were very surprised who he called. He called some fishermen to him, working class men, not uneducated, they would have been educated, but uh, ordinary men. They weren't the teachers of the law. He then calls this man here, Levi, who in our terms would be considered kind of upper middle class, but at a price. Like Sir Fred Goodwin, Sir Fred might be saying, oh, I don't care, I've got 14 million, so I can be as unpopular as I want. Uh, this man, Levi, would have been well off, but would also have been extremely unpopular, and we'll see why that is in a moment. This story is told in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Uh, Jesus, having healed sick bodies, now comes to deal with someone who certainly had a very sick spirit and soul. He goes to the lake. If you look at verse 13, he goes out beside the lake. Perhaps he goes to escape from the crowd. Uh, perhaps he goes to have a rest, but it didn't work because we read that a large crowd came to him, and he again teaches them. In effect, what, what happens is Jesus is expelled from the synagogue, and he goes to the lakeside, walking around the hill and talking to the people who were there. I just, just as almost as an aside, I just love this, this whole idea that Jesus doesn't think that his ministry and teaching is confined to one particular place, but everywhere he goes, even when he's gone for a walk, in effect, everywhere he goes, he seeks to fish for uh, men and women. He seeks to bring people to himself, and that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how Jesus calls people, and he calls this man Levi, and what it is that's involved in becoming a Christian. Now, obviously, if you're not a Christian, this is of great significance to you. If you are a Christian, or you think you are a Christian, it's also of great significance, because it helps us understand what it is, what we are as believers, and also how Christ calls and how we can be part of that. So, let's look, first of all, at this invitation that Jesus gives to Matthew in verse 14. Follow me, Jesus told him. Now, we need to say a little bit about who Levi is. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. His, uh, he, <laughs> the authorized version has it as a publican. Now, that's not in, as we would understand, publican. In, in those days, you would be far, I mean, if you said now, I'm a civil servant, I work for the government, I'm a tax collector, that's generally pretty respectable. If you're in church, you say, what do you do? I run a pub. Some people say, well, that's not quite so respectable. 
In those days, if you ran a pub, that would be very respectable compared with being a tax collector, because a tax collector was really very low down the scale of jobs. He was sitting at the tax collector's booth, which was a customs house, and what it was, it was a, um, an office that was on the road between the international highway that was between Syria and Egypt. And it was a kind of, it was a toll road. And if you wanted to pass that way, it was controlled by the Romans. If you wanted to pass that way, you had to pay uh, this man, Levi. He, because it was Roman controlled, he was working for the occupying force. It was as though you're in France during the Second World War and you're a Frenchman and you are working for the Nazi government or uh, the Vichy government. Uh, people would, many, many people would regard you completely as a traitor. So Jesus, he walks along and he sees Levi. Now there's a crowd of people. The large crowd comes to them and they are following him as he's teaching. And in this crowd, and this crowd is, Levi is not one of the ones who's following him. He sees Levi there and he says to Levi, follow me. Um, it, I, I've used the word invitation. Perhaps invitation is not the best word to use because it's not, would you like to come? It is almost along the lines of you, follow me. It's a very almost, well, it's a very forceful and in some ways a very strange call. Why is it like that? Because for Levi to follow Jesus required a complete change. It required a radical call to discipleship. And for us to follow Jesus, it requires that as well. You know, sometimes we like to present the gospel and we present it in this way. We kind of say, well, you know, being a Christian is quite a nice thing. And if you'd like to become a Christian or even consider it, then do this, do this, do this. And we actually, you know what we run the danger of? We run the danger of saying to people, why don't you come to our course? Even Christianity Explorers we have. Why don't you come to our church? Why don't you join our group? I wonder how often non-Christians hear the words of Christ, which is just simply to follow Him. We need that call from God. When God calls us, it changes absolutely everything. Now, how does He do that? We get that call through the Word of Christ. That's, of course, what happened with Levi. Jesus did not seek, I don't think Jesus sought popularity. I don't think Jesus sought to impress other people. If Jesus was seeking popularity, he'd turn to the crowd, he'd play to the crowd. He doesn't. He's walking along and he goes to the one person whom they would all have spat upon. Uh, and he says, you, follow me. His first priority, Jesus' first priority was always to address the needs of his audience through teaching the Word of God. And, and, and teaching that Word is Christ's first priority because it is man's greatest need. And again, that's what we are to do. We are seeking to communicate the Word of God. We're not seeking to communicate ourselves. We're seeking to communicate the Word of God. Now, amazingly, Matthew gets it. He gets up and he follows him. He left his tax booth. He just, it's almost as though, I don't know, for those of you who are in a job, have you ever been working in a job and you think, you would just love to get up, and in the words of Dolly Parton, I think it is, take this job and stuff it. I don't work here anymore. Just to say that, 
you know, I resign. You know, I've always kind of wanted to do that sort of dramatic thing where you actually do. You say, you know, it's my way or the highway. Okay, I'm taking the highway. Bye. You know, you have the, if you had the freedom to do that. Well, this is as dramatic as that. This is what Levi is doing. Jesus says, follow him. He says, all right, forget this job. I'm out of here. I'm gone. It really is quite extraordinary. He got up. Luke 5, verse 28, in his account of the story says, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi left his lucrative business and trusted that God would provide. One of the uh, ancient uh, Latin historians, a man called Porphyry, argued that Matthew's prompt obedience was proof of the mental weakness of Christ's disciples. What an idiot. He just gets up, leaves everything. Why didn't he take time to consider it? Why didn't he say, well, I'll follow you, but I'm going to carry on earning my living? Why did he just get up and do it? To which the Latin historian Jerome replied that this rather attests to the magnetic power of Jesus Christ. Now, for me, what is really extraordinary about this story is who the tax collector is. Let me just say a little bit more about that, because for us to realize, the Greek writer Lucian ranks tax collectors with adulterers, panderers, flatterers, and sycophants. They were seen as extortioners, collaborators, quislings. Tax collectors were, by definition, greedy, immoral, and dishonest. To the Jewish people, they were ceremonially unclean because they continually mix with non-Jewish people. And from Levi's point of view, his bridges were burned. It was as though he were a prostitute. It was as though he, he had a job or he had a lifestyle, which meant in the eyes of normal society, he was finished. And it's to that person that the word and the call of Jesus Christ came. And I think, again, we'll look at this a little bit more, but the, the whole point of that is the gospel comes to people who perhaps even by themselves, but certainly by others, are considered beyond the pale and are considered hopeless. And I know that we know that. I know that Christians know that. But I think personally that we don't act as though it were true. And we actually find it quite difficult to believe. That's why we don't tell people who are hopeless about the hope that's in the gospel, and that's why we struggle to accept people who are hopeless, and that's why we ourselves try and make ourselves worthy of the call of Christ. It's not how it works. This seed of the word that Jesus spoke to him, it fell on good soil. The Spirit had prepared his heart. Who knows, there's maybe a lot of stuff had went before. Maybe he knew who Jesus was, had heard about his miracles. That's highly likely. But there was an internal call. When Jesus said, follow me, he just, he knew that that was it. And that, again, th that's what happens with so many people's conversions to Jesus Christ, that you, you're hearing the word of Christ, and it's not just that it intellectually convicts you, which I hope it does. It's not just that you want to belong to the fellowship, which I hope you do, but, but within yourself, you know, you just know that this is Jesus calling. When I became a Christian, I'd listen to lots and lots of different sermons and things. And I could say yes or no to different bits. But there came a point in my life where I realized, where I was very aware of the inward call of God, where I was very aware that through God's Word, God was saying, you follow me, you follow me. And, and I also was very, very aware that 
I'd received several calls like that and in effect said no. And at the time I, if you like, surrendered to the Lord was a time when I, I, I just kind of knew this was probably it. This was it. Jesus was calling. I had to answer. I had to answer. There's an external call that comes, but it comes with the Spirit, with an internal call that goes on as well. That's, by the way, one of the most exciting things about coming to church. Because, not because, you, you know, everything's great, or the whole place is packed, or whatever, but because you never know when God is going to speak to somebody. You never know when that call is going to come. And that's why it's also an extremely dangerous thing to come to church. The non-Christian who says, I'm not going there because I could end up in trouble is actually spot on. Anyone non-Christian who goes to church in the absolute assurance that this is okay, this church makes me feel comfortable, this church makes me feel good, then there's something wrong with that church. I I really would have to say that because you should be very uncomfortable when God is speaking, when God is calling. It's not often a very comfortable experience. But that's what Jesus did. He invites people, and he continues to invite people. But then something else happens that's quite extraordinary. He socializes with sinners. Verse 15, again, we just, you can almost skim it. It's Mark is just typical, so concise. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus calls a man to himself. He calls him to be an apostle. Levi becomes Matthew, of course, a disciple and a friend. Jesus says, I have called you friends. He says to this traitor, to this collaborator, to this person who rejected his own heritage and his own people and probably his own family. And he says, you're my friend. We have Simon and Andrew. We have James and John. We have Philip and Nathaniel. And now we have Matthew who's there as the disciples. Now, it's one thing to talk to Levi. It is quite another to socialize with him, to go back to his house, to recline at the table, to, they they would have had mattresses going round, and um, if you've ever been to Turkey or somewhere like that, and you eat in a sort of traditional Turkish place, you just kind of, it's great, you lie on a mattress, well, you lie on a couch, and they sort of come and serve you, and you drink, and you have a wee snooze, and play backgammon or something, and it's just fantastic. Well, that's the kind of scene in, in, in Levi's house that he called everyone in, as many people as he could get, and they came around the, uh, the table where food would be served, low-lying table on these, these couches, and the Pharisees are there, and they come and they complain to Jesus' disciples. You'll notice, of course, they didn't complain to Jesus, because when we complain, we're usually spineless we complain to other people. We make subtle and not-so-subtle innuendos to other people. Again, just almost as an aside, if you've got something to say, say it to the person who you're saying it about. It's basic, very, very basic. But here you find these moral, religious people saying, you know that, Jesus, see that guy you're following? Just Look what he's doing. He's dodging. Sure, he does amazing things. His teaching's wonderful. Absolutely. But look who he mixes with. 
So we're meeting with the sinners, and the NIV rightly puts it in uh, inverted commas. Who were they? They were other tax collectors or others from the margins of society. They were the people you would not invite to your dinner party, and Levi invited them. They were the ones who did not live according to the strict code of the Pharisees, but may have been respectable in many other ways. Who knows? Now, it's quite clear that there were plenty of these people who followed Jesus. That's what it says. It again shows the incredible power of His Word and His teaching. And again, I just have to simply ask whether we believe that, whether we believe that that still applies today. Oh, I believe that Jesus does miracles today. Good. But do you believe that Jesus does the greatest miracle of all? Forgives people, raises them from the dead, spiritually speaking, grants newness of life. Jesus not only attracts the religious people, but He attracts the downright wicked. He draws people in who ordinarily would have nothing to do with religion. See, again, Christians, we kind of lament. We say, isn't it terrible in Dundee, or isn't it terrible in Scotland or Britain? People aren't interested in religion. The ordinary person is not interested in religion. Isn't that terrible? No, actually, it's not terrible. It's not terrible because I think the ordinary person, if you want to put it that way, who is not interested in religion is not interested in religion because religion has not taught them about Jesus Christ. And the fault is largely not so much with the society as with the church. The magnetism of Jesus is what draws people rather than the crowds that were already there. It's the magnetism of Christ that causes Levi. Levi doesn't get up from his tax collector's booth and say, I have to go and follow this large crowd. He comes because he is called, called by Jesus Christ. And again, I'm just trying to think about that in terms of our own culture. When Andrew brought some Greeks to see Jesus, sir, we want to see Jesus. But what have we got? What have we got in our church? What have we got in the churches in this city? How do people perceive? I tell you, I, I think that they perceive them as being religious. And even the sort of trendy ones that say, hey, we're not religious at all. People aren't fooled by that. They still see that that is the case because they don't see Jesus Christ. I, um, some of you know I did a debate this week on Premier Radio and um, ended up being about three hours of debate, which they put in two programs with a young atheist man. And I, you know, I think as I was discussing with him, I had this overwhelming feeling of, of sympathy and sorrow for him because he hadn't a clue about Jesus in any sense whatsoever. He really didn't have a clue about the Bible. All he knew was about religion. In fact, he said that. He said, when I was nine years old, I sat in church and I said to my mom, I don't think God exists and I don't believe in God. And his mom said to him, <laughs> his mom said, this is not the place. And he said, I thought, I thought this was precisely the place. And I said to him, you're right, it was precisely the place to discuss that. I said, what kind of religion would you have? He said, oh, just celebrations. So what do you mean? It's not like Christmas, Easter, that kind of thing, christenings. I said, so you, ne you didn't really, no, 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 they never took it too seriously. I said to him, you didn't, you haven't rejected Jesus Christ. I said, you have no idea who Jesus is. And he says, no, I probably don't. It was just quite extraordinary. And we, I mean, we talked a lot, in fact, 
it was really strange having this. I've never, I've never done a debate like this before. I felt at the end, and it was kind of live, and I looked at the presenter, and I thought, will I do this or won't I? I almost wanted to say, shall we pray together for you to receive Christ? <laughs> but <laughs> I decided not to um, at the time. But I, I just, I mean, I do pray for the guy. I was greatly taken with him, but I just thought, this is horrendous. And the woman who runs the atheist bus campaign, she was on as well. And it was another woman. I just thought, you have no idea. You have no idea who Jesus is. And then I look, and I see in the culture and the society around us here in Dundee, I see people walking the streets and people in our schools and people in our universities and people in our offices and, and where we work and everything. And they have no idea about Jesus. They've got a very vague idea about religion, but no idea about Jesus. And sadly, I think if they came into our churches, they might not end up with much idea either, which is dreadful. Because when this man comes to know Jesus, look what happens. He invites Jesus obviously into the house for a meal. He offers hospitality. In fact, it's a banquet. He invites his friends to tell them. This is, I mean, these must be dread words for any parent here. Mom, dad, I've got something to tell you. We're going to have a meal. Come around to the house. I've got a meal to tell you. You know what? It's a, uh, um, you think, what kind of news can that be? What's going to be said? Well, imagine Levi sending out his invites. Friends, I need you to come around to my house. I've got something to say to you. I'm inviting you all in. I've got news for you. Is he going to announce his engagement? Or is he going, well, no, because who's going to go near Levi? You know, all this kind of, what, what is going on? Imagine you got that kind of invite from someone saying, I've got major news for you. I'm not going to tell you over the phone. I'm not going to email you. I'm inviting you around to my house for a meal with a whole crowd of other people. I'm going to make this announcement. And he invites them for the meal, and they're all in. And Levi stands up and he says, I've chucked my job in. I'm not going to be a tax collector anymore. I'm going to follow this man, Jesus Christ. I mean, I reckon that's mega cringe, personally. I reckon people are looking and going, what? But he just did it. I mean, I, I doubt anyone who was there would ever forget that day when, if you forgive the expression, Levi came out as a Christian and said, this is it. I am following Jesus Christ. I wonder if any one of us would have the guts to do that. You know, you decide. When I became a Christian, as I told you, I knew I was committing myself to follow Jesus Christ, but I said, do I have to connect to the church? Do I have to admit to other people I'm a Christian? Can I not be a sort of secret disciple and do lots of good? And, and, and the Lord made it abundantly clear, don't be arrogant, don't be so stupid. Him who confesses me before men, I will confess. So, it really is the case. I wonder if anyone else would ever do this. Invite people around to your flat or to your house for a meal and say, by the way, I've, I've got something to tell you. I've become a Christian. I've decided to follow Jesus Christ. Well, I couldn't do that. It's too in your face. No, no, you couldn't do that because it's too embarrassing. But I'm telling you, it would have an enormous impact. Jesus answers then the Pharisees because he socializes with the sinners. The Pharisees question. The word has a negative impact as well as a positive because the opposition continues as increases. And remember in Mark's gospel, these are the conflict narratives that are occurring. The Pharisees were concerned for the moral purity as well as the ritual eating, eating with toll collectors, sinners, and so on. They argued that you were as much a sinner if you ate without the ritual washing of hands as if you were a thief or a murderer. Interestingly enough, the term Pharisee is, an, is, a, is a fascinating one because it just, 
It's derived from the Aramaic for divide or separate. They're separated ones, and that's how they thought of themselves. We are separate from everything. We are separate from everyone who is not pure. They were a small group, as the pure often tend to be, but they had a large influence in the community and in the social life because people kind of looked up to them. You know, they were sort of like how people look at nuns and monks. You know, oh, nuns, oh, it's cool to be a nun, and nuns are great and all this kind of stuff, but it's almost like they're surrogate um, holy people for us. But their definition of sinner was wrong. Their definition of sinner was someone who did not accept the Pharisaic definition of the law. In that terms, Jesus was a sinner because he did not fulfill the ritual washing. These were men who looked down on others with contempt, who treated others with fear, who were scared they would be contaminated. If I go to his house, I could be contaminated. Now, we may say that's not our attitude, but I think it often is. I think we often are afraid of other people. I think we often are contemptuous of people. And if we have that attitude, we will never be a fisher of men. Now, they still went to the dinner, maybe because it was food, but maybe because they just wanted to be there so that they could show how much better they were than anyone else. Sometimes I find myself going to a meeting thinking, why am I going here? And part of the thing is so that I can see how wrong they are. It's not a good motive. And that was the Pharisees. Matthew records that uh, Jesus cited uh, Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that's the real thing with the Pharisees. What's missing from their religion is grace. Because as Jesus answers them, he says this, just as it was natural for doctors to mix with sick, pe sick people, so it was natural for him to mix with sinners. The whole point of Jesus' coming was to call people to repentance and change of heart and lifestyle. To those who are self-righteous and self-satisfied, Jesus has nothing to offer, nothing. Jesus did not come just to be a lawgiver, a king, a teacher, or an example. All these, yes, but much more. He came to be a doctor. He came to be a healer. Now, I do wonder, how would we react if the loan sharks, bankers, um, prostitutes, you know, came to our churches today? How would we react? What do you do when junkies start coming into your church and you say, well, we're going to put you on a, you on a program to get you off drugs? No, 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 that's not why they're coming to church. We want to introduce people to Jesus Christ. For Jesus to refuse to associate with the disreputable would be as absurd as for a doctor to say, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to go to a hospital with anyone who's sick. It just doesn't make any sense. And I think these Pharisees did not see the need Again, it's like being a doctor in A&E, in, in accident and emergency, and being there and just not seeing people with need. The Pharisees were concerned for God's glory and for moral purity, but they had no concern for other people. And you cannot have that. You can't say that you're concerned for God's glory, you're concerned for the truth of the gospel, you're concerned for the moral life of society, and then have no concern for other people. That's not real holiness. The surgeon who scrubs up before the operation is cleaning up in order to help. The Christian who draws near to God, who seeks to be holy, who seeks to glorify God, we do so because we know we are going to get our hands dirty. 
because we know we are going to go places and hear things and see things and be with people who, if we were left to ourselves, we would naturally recoil from. But because we follow Jesus Christ, we don't. Jesus doesn't accept what the sinners are doing. He doesn't condone their sin. He asks them to leave it, to follow him. He doesn't say to, to Levi, look, hey, Levi, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to show you grace. And isn't it wonderful? Now just carry on with your life. He says, Levi, come follow me. Likewise, we go to people as those who are sick, who found the doctor, to tell them where they also can find the one who heals. And let me try and tie all this together. First of all, let me say something about mixing with people who are not believers or who are a bad influence. Obviously, there are clear boundaries and problems and situations in which we would rightly feel very, very uncomfortable. But if we cut ourselves off from people so that we then develop an entire subculture of our own, that does not help. Christians who do not mix with non-Christians, it's, it's an absolute absurd idea. It's the choice between separation or compromise. Because again, what happens is you'll get Christians, and I've seen this, I've seen this in the university here where, where students come and they say, oh, I don't want to be one of those Christians who doesn't mix with non-Christians, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I don't, you know, I'm not going to church on Sunday because I want to be with my friends. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to show them I can be just like them. No, that's the point. Levi didn't need Jesus to come and be just like him. He needed Jesus to come and like him and be different from him. Be different. Sustained by prayers to the Father and in his fellowship with the disciples, Jesus was able to, to mix in the most difficult of situations. His knowledge of Scripture, his, his as I say, his prayers and his fellowship with the disciples meant he was able to draw strength, go into the most unlikely company, and bring the good news to those who most needed it. If you want to mix with non-Christians at a real level, then you don't compartmentalize your life and have a religious bit here, and this is the non-religious bit. You don't cut yourself off from fellowship with the Lord's people. If you really want to mix with non-Christians, then you get as much teaching and as much prayer and as much fellowship as you can. And that's, by the way, why I think it is a complete load of junk when someone says, well, I go to church on Sunday morning and then Sunday evening so I can be with my friends or be with my family and witness to them and so on. Look, if you are going to witness really in the difficult and dirty situations, you need to be fed. You, need, you don't need to be going to meetings every night of the week. That would be wrong. But you need to be fed with God's word because you're going to be giving out God's word. And you kind of have this, it's almost as though you're getting medicine and you're just going out to dispense it to people. And the more you dispense, the more you need. So I, my, my plea would be, of course, we're not dividing the world and saying, well, I can't mix with them, those people because they're bad people. We're all bad people in, in, in the biblical sense of the word. We draw close to Christ and we copy Christ and follow Christ and hopefully are used by Christ to call people to himself. Notice also, as I say, the changes that Jesus brings. Levi becomes Matthew. Matthew means gift of Jehovah. 
It's a real gift. Jesus wanted the man that no one else wanted. He had to give up things, yes, but he gained. He got a far better job. For example, he wrote the first gospel. Matthew the tax collector, Matthew the gospel. Levi the tax collector, Matthew the gospel writer. He brought him the one thing he could not have been looking for, the one thing he would not desire, which is worldwide eternal fame. Just enormous changes occur when Jesus calls. Think also of this, that Jesus is for the needy. It's not really acceptable to be needy, is it? Um, well, there's one episode of the American sitcom Friends where Joey asks, is that too desperate or needy? Because he's mega cool and he doesn't want to be seen to be desperate or needy. And we don't want to be seen to be desperate or needy. But until we get rid of our pride and recognize our need, we will not really bother with Jesus. Matthew was probably brought up in a good home, and his parents would have been horrified at the way he turned out. He was a man who, as he sat there, must have had an ache in his heart when Jesus called him. He couldn't have gone to the good people. He couldn't have gone to the Pharisees. He couldn't have gone to the respectable people, but he came to Jesus. William Barclay says this, to have no sense of need is to have erected a barrier between us and Jesus. To have a sense of need is to possess the passport to his presence. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I, I don't want to be one of those needy people. But you are a needy person, and, and I hope you recognize your need. I hope you recognize your illness, your desperate need for Jesus Christ. And then just one other thing to say, just as a, maybe a, a kind of warning to those of us who are Christians as well. We need to be aware of something that I want to call the sin of preparationism. Preparationism is the idea that, yes, I, I ought to become a Christian, I ought to follow Jesus, but in order to follow Jesus, I need to prepare myself. I need to have this, 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 and this. It's as though you're going to um, a wedding or you're, you've been invited out for a date, and you say, before I go on the date, I've got to get all dressed up, you know, got to get decent clothes on, things like that. And when people hear the gospel, that's what they think. They think, okay, I need to learn X amount of the Bible. I need to sort out some of the problems in my life. There are people who say to me, David, I'm really keen to come to church and find out about God, but first of all, I need to sort this out. I'm not there yet. I'm not ready. It's one of the worst lies that the devil can give to you. Jesus does not call you because of what or who you are or what you have done. There is nothing that you can do, and there is nothing that you can say, and there is nothing that you can be that makes Christ more likely to call you. Preparationism is when there are even Christians who say this, if only I can repent some more, if only I can do this some more, or get away from this particular sin, I have this, you know, sin that keeps going on in my head, if only I can get rid of it, then I can come to Jesus. In other words, what you're saying is, I'm not yet ready to be accepted by Jesus. But when will you ever be accepted? When will you ever be acceptable? Because Jesus comes to us when we are naked. Jesus, we, we have no clothing to put on. He comes to us when we are bloodied and bruised and battered. He comes to us when we are sick. We are not healthy. And he calls us to come just as we are. I know it's been done to death, but I actually love the film, uh, the film, the film, the, the hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. 
But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Until you get to that point, you will never come to Jesus. You will never become a Christian, because you'll always be coming with something in this hand saying, well, Lord, here's my wallet, here's my gifts, here's my family, here's the talents that I have, here's all these different things. You haven't been called to Jesus if you come carrying things. If you come to Jesus with nothing, if you come to Jesus saying, Lord, I, I'm accepting your invitation, I come, then you've got it. Like Levi got it, like Matthew got it. Many of the people in the crowds who listened to Jesus and who followed Jesus and who thought it was cool for a while, they never really came to him. But Jesus called Levi and he came. And I just want to encourage those of you who are not yet Christians to come to Jesus Christ. When he calls you, follow him. And I want to encourage those of us who are Christians, let's get out into this world and let's plead with people and call people to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Bless your word to us, O God. Enable each of us to come to you in whatever our circumstances may be, and enable us to invite others, for we ask it in your name. Amen.